Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, May 17th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new study looks at the correlation between Mississippi's parole program and the state's high incarceration rate. Then, law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty are remembered for their sacrifice. Plus, a new podcast is investigating how climate change could affect the Gulf Coast through economics, culture, and beyond. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new report by the Prison Policy Initiative is shedding light on how probation and parole contributes to Mississippi's incarceration rate. Since 1978, both the state's pretrial and overall prison population has grown by more than 300 percent. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Leah Wang, an analyst at the organization who helped conduct the research and authored the report. She says high fees in the parole system and the requirement to stay in a single place can stunt someone's ability to reintegrate into society. Mass incarceration typically refers to people behind bars in prisons and jails, but there are millions more people within correctional systems every single day. And many of those people are on probation or parole, collectively referred to as community supervision. Now, probation is a sentence that you would face for a period of time where you have to remain in the community, but you're under the supervision of a probation office. Um, So that means that you may never have been to jail or prison in your life, um, but you're on supervision in the community. And some sort of misstep can actually bring you back behind bars for violating the rules of your probation. Parole is slightly different. It's a type of conditional release from prison. So it assumes that you have already been serving some time in prison. Um, But like probation, once released on parole, um, you are supervised in the community by a similar parole office or officer. And like probation, again, you can have that status taken away from you for violating certain conditions of your parole. And that can bring you back behind bars to serve out the rest of your sentence in prison. And so the report also mentions that community supervision is overused. What does that look like? Right. So we wrote this report to shed light on how states tend to overuse and misuse community supervision uh, to keep people under control and surveillance, which ultimately brings many of them back behind bars uh, and harms others and their families. Probation and parole 
could be utilized well for people leaving prison or facing a possible sentence. They are great opportunities to connect people with meaningful services, but instead we find that probation and parole often set people up to fail because they have simply too many conditions being put on people. They are just high stakes rules that people have to follow that the rest of us do not, and violating those rules can result in incarceration. So we argue, like so many other experts have been saying for years, that community supervision actually feeds into and is very tightly linked to mass incarceration and merits a wider view that we call mass punishment or correctional control. By some estimates, 42% of admissions to state prisons are due to violations of probation and parole, which should be a huge red flag to these state agencies that are designing supervision programs. I'm wondering, what is ostensibly the goal of community supervision? Well, we often hear that it's meant to be an alternative or sort of a lenient sentence for someone uh, facing time behind bars or for someone who's spent years behind bars and is hoping to get out. So what we're told is that these are, again, a lenient approach to punishing people, um, but we find that they're sort of insidiously designed to trap people and to put to put conditions on their lives that make it almost impossible to get back on their feet, let alone to thrive in our communities and make our communities better. So we have sort of a one-dimensional narrative of probation and parole that makes us think that people are uh, free because they are physically in our communities, but we certainly have found that they they are not, and they are many of them are well on their way back behind bars simply because it's too much to comply with the rules of community supervision and to live their regular lives. To switch to Mississippi for a minute, something that really jumped out to me in the report is that Mississippi would have the highest incarceration rate in the world if it was its own country. At that, it's nearly twice as high as the rate of the United States. What effects can such a high incarceration rate have on a society, and in this case, the state of Mississippi? Right. So Mississippi is certainly one of the worst offenders when it comes to incarceration alone, let alone the overall mass punishment landscape that we ranked states on for this report. Um, being behind bars specifically comes with its own um, right set of disadvantages, taking people away from their communities and away from their families and away from their stability is a huge disservice to the residents of Mississippi. There are many angles that we could talk about uh, why mass incarceration in Mississippi is terrible, but it's a it's a huge waste of taxpayer money. You know, Mississippi pr- prisons are not known for their humane conditions of confinement. It's a little disappointing to see the rankings for Mississippi. Again, we put this report out in 2018, doing the same sort of correctional control rankings, and Mississippi was, I think, the fifth highest rate of incarceration. And this year, we found them at the second highest rate of incarceration behind Louisiana. So it's a little disappointing to see a state like Mississippi actually sort of climbing the ranks. So it's really important for state lawmakers and advocates to be taking the data that we put out for them and asking these questions. Included in the report was that both the prison incarceration rate and the pretrial population in Mississippi have risen, I believe, more than threefold since the late 1970s. How does that rise compare to national trends, if at all? Since the 1970s, uh, pretrial populations nationwide have exploded. Uh, Mississippi is not uh, a super outlier in that way. I can't speak to other 
specific trends. I think the last 10 years and then, of course, the last three years have changed everything. So my grasp of individual states changes um, compared to, to national changes I can't fully speak to, but we do provide a lot of granular data to that effect on our website. And what has led to that rise nationally? Well, the 70s marked the early chapters of the era of mass incarceration. So depending on your starting point, um, we, of course, did see huge rises in prison populations since then. Um, if you look more at the last 10, 15 years, prison populations have started to wind down a little bit. Um, a lot of that is sort of incremental changes, um, federal and state policy changes. It's certainly not enough to address the crisis of mass incarceration because we still have 2 million people behind bars and we still have millions more on community supervision. So, you know, to get back to the point of our report, even though things have been maybe looking better over the past handful of years, it's simply not happening at a pace that is going to scale back our systems and return people to our communities in a real authentic way anytime soon. And our goal is to get states to look deeply at their rates and their numbers to try to make real considerable change now. Leah Wang is an analyst at the Prison Policy Initiative. Coming up, Mississippi remembers law enforcement officers killed in the line of duty. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's National Police Week. Members of state law enforcement killed in the line of duty are being remembered for their service. During an annual ceremony held yesterday in Jackson, flowers were placed in memory of 37 state law enforcement officers. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Keith Tart of Grenada. His brother, James Lee Tart, was killed while on duty. He was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics and he was killed on February the 20th of 2016. Keith, I'm so sorry for your loss. How does an event like this help you remember your brother? In a lot of cases, it's a, there's a lot of reliving. I mean, you, you, you go back through the event, and then this event every year just makes sure that we do honor the members, the memories of all these people who have given so much to make sure that we're protected and that we can continue to do what we're doing. So that's, you know, that's the important part to me. How much does it mean to you that this law enforcement still knows you by name, that it's a big family over here? It's a really big deal because, as they stated so many times as we were going through the service, it is a big family. And you really do get to know everybody. The, the events are unfortunate that get you there, but it, it really is a pleasure to, to know all of the tremendous men and women that are a part of what goes on. 
to protect us and the sacrifices that everybody's willing to give. I've got a son that's in law enforcement, and he's in law enforcement because of what my brother has done. So, you know, it's, it's, it is. It's one big family, and, and they make sure that they keep you as a part of that family. When we were listing off the names, some of these men passed away as late as 1940, long time ago. How does it make you feel that here in 80 years we'll still be reading off your brother's name here in Jackson? It's it's tremendous, and it's and it's the dedication of the department. I mean, you obviously, you know, the Department of Public Safety puts a lot of a lot of stock and a lot of importance on doing this event, and it's important for the families that it keeps going. And one last question for you. So your son is in law enforcement. Did you have to have any tough conversations or any fears you had to express with him when he said he wanted to do that? Almost every day, every day. And we, we go through that uh, that discussion quite a lot. This event goes through my head and the loss of my brother. So, yeah, it's all tied together. Also at the ceremony, Colonel Randy Gwynn, director of the Mississippi Highway Patrol. The men that we're honoring all gave their lives in the line of duty to one of the agencies, the Department of Public Safety, the Highway Patrol, the Bureau of Narcotics, Bureau of Investigations, and Commercial Transportation Enforcement. And each year we gather to join with their families just to commemorate uh, the sacrifice that they gave and to bring uh, hopefully a little bit of happiness and, and joy and, and honor to the families that we invite to, to be with us on each, each year. There are men listed in the program that we're honoring today that passed away all the way in the 1940s. Why is it important to remember those fallen so long ago in ceremonies like this? Well, we're a, we're a tradition-rich agency. We've been in existence for 85 years, and, and only two years after the agency was created, we lost our first officer. And we still have some family members from some of those officers that, that still attend the ceremony. And we've even seen grandchildren and great-grandchildren here today. So it's just our way to reaching out to those uh, families to let them know they're still part of us. They always will be a part of us. And we always want our officers and our staff to remember those who went before them and the sacrifices that they gave to help us to maintain the freedoms and enjoy what we enjoy today. Speaking of staff, a lot of officers here honoring their fallen. When events like this happen where you honor those that have sadly passed away, what is your message to your staff on days like today? Well, our staff is we can never forget, like I said, the sacrifices that have been made before us. The, the road that's been paved for us is paved on the backs of these men who have given their all and the men who, who, and women who, who gave the sacrifice. And we should never discount that and we should never forget it. It should always be fresh in our minds and, and we should be willing to, to, to say thank you to those families for the sacrifice that they made because they made the ultimate sacrifice with their loved one when, when he passed. They, they, they remained and they've had to pick up the pieces and it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that, that we take care of those families. What part of this ceremony means the most to you? The part that touches me the most is when we, when we call the names of the fallen and we see brothers, wives, grandchildren, great-grandchildren come forward and place that rose on that marker. It, it touches me then. It touches me when the names are called of the men that I worked with and personally knew that that are now on that wall. That's that's the most touching moment to me is when we're calling those names and recognizing them individually. Local law enforcement agencies across the state are also holding ceremonies this week for fallen officers.
Coming up, a new podcast is examining the links between culture, economics, and sea change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new podcast is investigating how changes in the Gulf could change life in the Southeast. We speak with Louisiana-based reporters Carlisle Calhoun, Hallie Parker, and Kizia Sedawan. They are co-producers and hosts of the Sea Change podcast. Calhoun says they want to understand how climate can shape everything from economics to culture. We're all living through a lot of changes, especially a lot of environmental changes from the impacts of climate change in particular. And we're really feeling those intensely on our coastlines where we're dealing with issues like sea level rise and land loss and even more devastating hurricanes. But we also want to explore positive changes that are taking place and that people are fighting for. And the name, a sea change refers to to a transformation a big change in the way we do things. And that is essential for us all now to come together to to make happen so that we can enjoy living at the coast and and wherever we live. As you talk about a sea change, as you talk about the environment and environmental justice, what ultimately is your goal? Are you trying to teach people about different industries, give them an overview of what is happening to the coast environmentally? We have a lot of goals, really. Part of it is to raise more awareness about what people on the coast, what these coastal communities are going through and dealing with and how they're thinking about the change that's happening around them. When you're thinking about this change and what's happening, I think it's also about lessons. And so while we're all learning how to deal with climate change and how to adapt, I think that there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from what's happening on the Gulf Coast, like even just between states. And that can be from Louisiana, where a lot of our stories have been centered just because that's where we're based. But we're also hoping to do more stories in Mississippi. We have a story coming up from Alabama. And a lot of these issues are intertwined. And so we really feel like it's something that everyone's going to be able to learn from as we hear what's going on in each area Your first podcast was about shrimp. What is so important about that industry that you wanted to get across? Well, this is an issue that that affects shrimpers across our southern states. And um, on the, you know, shrimpers are are feeling, feeling the struggle just like shrimpers in Louisiana are right now. The shrimp industry is really struggling, as many people know, and that's from a whole host of reasons that some are some are the changing ecosystem and impacts on climate change and land loss. And they're also, you know, just due to the globalized nature of how we get our food now. And so they're dealing with just a massive amount of imported shrimp. The whole fishing industry, this is across the Gulf Coast, is intertwined in our culture here. And one of the, a big reason why we all love living here, you know, the, the culture around seafood and then just enjoying eating it 
is a big part of, of life here. And so when an industry that's, that's culturally important um, and important economically is kind of on the ropes, then that impacts us all. So that is, it's an environmental story, it's a cultural story, and, and it's a business story. So hopefully people will enjoy meeting the Shrimpers in, in that episode too. At a fresh seafood market in Louisiana, the podcast team met with fisherman Thomas Gonzalez. They asked him about the major changes facing the shrimping industry. Oh, change. We don't have no more land. Everything's gone. This island was all commercial fishermen. It was all Spanish. 99% Spanish. Mm-hmm. It was a big community. We had our own school. We had theater and everything down here. Then we ain't got nothing left here. The podcast is produced in partnership between New Orleans-based radio station WWNO and WRKF in Baton Rouge, but covers issues related to Mississippi and other Gulf states. Producers say they want to capture not just the political and environmental issues of sea change, but the toll these changes can take on residents. I would definitely say anger is a huge part of what they're feeling. But I think there's also from I spoke to a lot of different types of people. Like I spoke to people who have been at the forefront of that battle, like leaders in that activist local activism movement. And they're, of course, angry. They were frustrated for a long time that they weren't being listened to, despite, um, you know, a lot of the research backing up what their concerns were around air quality. Um, And I think now they're finally feeling more of a sense of hope, like they have the ears of people who are important, people in power, who have the possibility of going up against, um, you know, some of these larger companies to have their concerns actually heard on a higher level. Um, And I even spoke to more to people who are more on the fringes of that, you know, people who are just living their lives while breathing in this air there was still some anger there and still frustration, but also just like a sense that they don't know what's happening around them, that they just want more information that they don't fully understand or have the information provided to them about what's going on in their community. So it's really a mix of feelings there. And I mean, some people support the industry that's in their community. They've benefited from it. Their families have benefited from it for generations working for some of those companies. So in some cases, it's also just what people are used to. And speaking about it affecting us all, there is the concern that communities of color are disproportionately affected by environmental issues. Have you covered that? I think we do a great job in bringing in a variety of voices and people um, to talk about different issues, whether that's music or talking about how the environmental movement can be exclusionatory um, and can only feel like it's for white people. Uh, to um, For our shrimper episode, we tie in how shrimping is not only just a livelihood, but it's an, impor- an important reflection of um, indigenous lifeways um, and communities down the bayou. We really want to be wholehearted and how we cover this and make sure that people feel all aspects of themselves are represented in their story. And we're not just picking and choosing like a hot button issue. And only this part of your suffering is uh, being represented in our episodes. For future projects, what do you have in mind? My upcoming episode that will be out in the start of the summer um, 
is on how climate change affects our heritage and cultural sites and what folks on the ground are doing to protect and save these parts of our community that are under threat and what choices folks have had to make. More broadly, we just have a lot of ideas around, you know, these big hot issues right now, like um, insurance, flood insurance prices, insurance premiums going up and skyrocketing. Um, we're hoping to do a bigger project on hurricane recovery, which I know is something that's sensitive to a lot of us on the Gulf Coast. And then just also making sure we continue to have really entertaining and interesting conversations. Um, we've already talked to different activists from the music side, and we're also hoping to do more around artists who are looking to communicate differently around climate change. Um, we're thinking about um, the ways that the ocean and the coast can affect our mental health and our mental mentality. Um, so really just trying to find stories that, of course, touch us personally, like those issues with insurance or hurricane recovery, but then also other ways to think about what's happening around us. New episodes of the podcast, Sea Change, are released every other Wednesday. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.